In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, come down upon us as we speak about the revelation from our Heavenly Father. Speak about your role in proclaiming the Word to us. We ask you to open our hearts to see the revelation of, of God and to see that how we can live that in our lives. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So last week, we talked about how we know that God exists. We talked about how we can know from reason, from thinking through proofs that God exists. That he, you know, we can, we can tell by looking at nature, we can tell by looking at ourselves, at humanity, we can see that God exists. But one thing we said was we cannot know God in his fullness. We know he's there, we just don't know who he is. So God in his in his wisdom and his love for us, has revealed himself to us. He has shown himself to us. He has shown that not just does he exist, but he is a father who loves us and he wants us to be in relationship with him. So he wants us to come to know him and to come to share in his divine nature. That's what we call grace. Grace is sharing in the divine nature of God. The peace, the love, the mercy, the joy of God, sharing in God himself. Now, we don't become gods. This isn't, we're not like Mormons who say, if you're a good Mormon, you become a god. You know, we do, we do not become a part of the Trinity, but we share in that love of the Trinity when we are in the kingdom of heaven. As the Catechism says, uh, paragraph 52, by revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable, us capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. So by God giving us revel his divine revelation, we are able to respond to that. We are able to hear what God has said to us through divine revelation and respond in kind, respond to him, that we, we can come to know him as well, you know, to know who he is, who our Heavenly Father is, to have that relationship with him to know who he is as deeply almost as he knows us. He knows us deeper than we know ourselves. Well, we can come to know him in much the same way. Not completely, but much the same way. And then, of course, to love him. To return that, that love that he shows for us, that love that he shows for us so deeply that he created us and he made us to share in that love. So it is through revelation that we can do all this. But God didn't reveal himself all in one big, here's, you know, here's the big book and you have to know everything. He revealed himself to humanity gradually. And that's this little chart I made here, you know, along the top there, are the steps of revelation that humanity went through, that God led humanity through uh, as time went on. Now, of course, we've got Adam and Eve. We've got in the beginning, you know, the first... You know, they're in the garden, everything's happy. And they initially had the fullness of revelation. Adam and Eve knew God in a way that we, do, we cannot today. In a way we will not until heaven. The, the scriptures talk about how they walked in the garden with him. You know, they were that personal with him. It'd be like walking through the garden with a friend. They lived in harmony with God. They lived in friendship with him. They knew him. They spoke to him as a friend. 
and then they fell. And we know the story of the first, the, the original sin and the, the devil and the temptation and all that. They lost that harmony with God. They lost that friendship with God. But God didn't give up on them. Our Heavenly Father did not give up on Adam, on humanity at that point. He didn't say, well, that was a mistake and move on. He revealed himself slowly. He started by revealing that humanity one day would have a Savior. That one day that original sin would be washed away. And we once again would have the fullness of revelation. It was a small start, but it was a start. He wanted to show humanity that we could still come back to him, that we could still have that friendship, that we could still come to know him. And so humanity starts on this path back to God, and eventually we get to Noah and the flood. Again, a story we've probably all heard since we're infants of humanity had gotten so evil that God washed it away except for Noah and his family. And he made a covenant with Noah that he would never do that again. He would never wipe out humanity the way he did in the great flood. But instead, he sought to save the nations. Humanity, we came into our, you know, into our groups of humanity these nations. You know, we know the story of, you hear the story of Babel where all humanity was united and they wanted to build this tower to their glory. Not God's glory, their glory. And so their language was confused and the people were dispersed into the nations. God started revealing himself group by group by group. And that brings us to Abraham. Abraham, the, the father of the Israelite nations, the father of a multitude of nations. God comes to him and reveals that he would be this father of the chosen people. That these people would be preparing the world to unite the nations. That all these nations who have been separated because of sin, because of division, because of everything going on, would one day be reunited under God, reunited under the church. And this is where we get the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where we get the prophets, the, you know, uh, Isaiah and Elijah and all the other prophets, Jeremiah, who prepared the Israelite people over centuries and centuries and centuries, prepared them for this reunion of humanity, this fullness of revelation of humanity. And, of course, we have the people of Israel who have the Mosaic Law, who through Moses in the, was given the, the law of God, the law that they were called to live under after their slavery in Egypt. This law that showed that they were the, the, the chosen people who were to serve the one true God and await the Savior that they have been slowly prepared for. God has been slowly getting them ready, slowly keeping them looking forward, keeping looking forward to that day when that Savior would come. They were the, the first to hear the Word of God, that the, the Mosaic Law was the Word of God, is the Word of God, and they were the first to receive that Word. And finally, after thousands of years 
we come to our Lord. The fullness of revelation. The completion of revelation. He is the one that the Israelites were awaiting for. He is the one that was promised to Adam and Eve would one day save the world, would one day save humanity. With him, revelation is complete. Public revelation is done. It has been revealed. We have the fullness of it. There won't ever be another book of the Bible. I love these. Uh, they always come up around, oh, Easter time or so. These shows like on History Channel or something like that. Who was the real Jesus? You know, where is Jesus buried? Hint, he's not. Um, and they'll, sometimes they'll have one of these, the lost books of the Bible. There aren't any lost books of the Bible. These are false books. These are books that were written by people to uh, promote a heresy. These were written to, you know, as, as popular piety in some cases. The Bible is complete. The Bible that we have is the fullness of the Bible. There's no, no new Bible, regardless of how breathlessly they tell you new books were found in this place or that. Um, no, there's not other revelation waiting to happen like the Mormons who say that Jesus appeared to ancient, in an ancient American civilization, that after he died and rose again, he came to the Americas and, and appeared to American Indians. No, didn't happen. Sorry, hate to break it to our Mormon brothers and sisters. It didn't happen. You know, that, that's one of those strange ones that they've got. But public re revelation is done. There will be no more public revelation. Now, there have been elements of what we in the church call private revelation. And this is an important distinction. Public revelation is the revelation by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Private revelation are things like apparitions, you know, where our Lord or our Lady or St. Joseph or one of the other saints appear to someone. Example of this is Lord's and Fatima. Those are both events of private revelation where our Lord or Our Lady appeared to the person who saw it. There are what we call interlocutions where Our Lord or Our Lady or one of the saints speaks to this person. Uh, this, is, this is actually more the case of divine mercy. Uh, Sister Faustina, she actually had more of these interlocutions where she heard and spoke to Our Lord but didn't have a, a vision. She did at some points have apparitions, but other times it was more in her mind. She could hear and speak to our Lord in her mind. Uh, through, what, again, what we call an interlocution, the voice inside is what that means, and so on. And many of these private revelations have been approved by the church for our good, to say that these are legitimate acts by God. That, again, you know, I mentioned Fatima, I mentioned Lourdes, uh, Knock over in Ireland is one. Um, there's one in Japan, Akita, which has received approval. Um, so many others. But there have been some that have received wide followings that were later found to be false. Uh, one of these happened, is still kind of going on in Columbus, Ohio, called Divine Love. There's this Divine Love Center, Divine Love uh, Shrine or whatever in Ohio, and there's someone there who claims to be getting messages from our Lord while they've been shown to be phony. They're false. Another one happened in uh, Bayside, New York, which is up by New York City. 
same thing. There, every once in a while you hear of these, they come out, people follow them, they start spreading the messages, and the church, you know, a bishop or, or somebody like that will come out and say, no, this is false, this, is, this didn't happen. So we need to use, allow the church to help us understand what is truly private revelation and what is a false revelation, a false message. These private revelations are not something that we have to follow. You can be a very good Catholic and never pray the Fatima prayer, oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those who most need thy mercy. You know, we can go without uh, praying that prayer or doing divine mercy chaplet or doing any of these other private devotions. We can get, we can, that'd be, you know, it's not needed. All we need is public revelation. Because private revelation is generally given for a specific place and or a specific time. You know, you look at some of the messages from Fatima had to do with event, world events that were going on then. You know, such as World War I. It was contemporary to that. And so on. So, revelation has been complete. So how do we know what revelation is? How do we receive that divine revelation? You know, how there's very particular, you know, God does it in certain ways. He has, he has chosen how he wants to ensure that the gospel of Christ is spread throughout the world. He wants us all to be saved. He, all want, he wants all of humanity to come to salvation and has given us the tools that we need to proclaim the gospel to go out and proclaim the gospel. And that the most important way divine revelation is transmitted, it's passed from generation to generation to generation, is through what we call apostolic tradition. It's tradition that comes from the apostles. It's the gospel being handed on from generation to generation to generation through from culture to culture, from country to country, from one person to the next. But it is through, first and foremost, apostolic tradition. And it's passed on in two ways. There are two parts to apostolic tradition. First, orally, spoken. These are the teachings of the apostles that they have passed on to their successors, to those who followed after them. You know, the, the apostles watched and listened to our Lord. They saw what he did. They heard what he said. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, they passed that on from, through word of mouth, from person to person. The other one, the other form of apostolic tradition is the written tradition. That, those teachings, those apostolic teachings that have been put down to writing, what we call the sacred scriptures, the Bible. The Bible is written apostolic tradition. And again, the apostles and those who were affiliated with them, not everybody who wrote in the New Testament was an apostle, but those who were affiliated with the apostles, they worked with the apostles, were guided by the Holy Spirit to put these teachings down in writing, in what we today have as the Bible. And so as I mentioned, the apostles, to pass these teachings on, whether oral or written, 
they realized that they need to have the next generation of apostles, of people to, to carry these teachings. And so we have what's called apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is apostles choosing what we today call bishops, and then those bishops choose bishops and on down for 2,000 years connection. It's interesting, in, you can go to a website called Catholic Hierarchy, catholic-hierarchy.org. Catholic, if you just search for Catholic Hierarchy, you'll find it. And you can look up Bishop Michael Warfield. And you can see what bishop ordained him to be a bishop. And what bishop ordained that bishop. And what bishop ordained that bishop. Back all the way to the 1500s. So you can see the chain of this apostolic succession from one bishop to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to Bishop Warfel, to the 1500s. And probably only because the records that the guy who put the website together could get only went back to the 1500s. Of course, our knowledge that there is a chain of bishops from Bishop Warfel all the way back to one of the apostles. Somewhere, one of the apostles is in Bishop Warfel's lineage of succession. They receive, bishops receive their teaching authority from the apostles. And that's the important point of apostolic succession. It's the apostle gives this bishop authority to teach, who gives that bishop authority to teach, who gives that bishop authority to teach, and on and on and on. It's a continuous chain of bishops going all the way back. This oral teaching that we are, yeah, this, 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 this apostolic teaching, this, this chain of teachings going all the way back to the apostles, we call tradition. It is that chain of teaching going from generation to generation to generation. So when we talk in the church about tradition, we're talking about that chain of teaching. Now a talk I've written up here, big T tradition versus little T tradition. I'll talk about that in a minute. Right now we're talking about the big T tradition. And I'll explain the difference in a minute. But this tradition is those teachings passed from generation to generation to generation. And so, the, and usually when we're referring to tradition, we're referring to the oral tradition. We're referring to the tradition that was passed from, spoke through, through spoken word from person to person, which we've, of course, now since written down, but it's still, we call it oral tradition. Now, when we look at how, again, how the gospel was handed on, it was both orally and written, spoken tradition and the Bible, the scriptures. How do they work together? They're both equal parts of revelation. Neither is more important than the other. They are bound together and they work together. The scriptures help us understand the oral tradition. The oral tradition helps us understand the scriptures. They work together. This is part of the reason why I wanted to do this catechism class before we start really digging into the Bible. I want to make sure we understood the oral tradition, again, in loose sense, because we, every, we write everything down now. But I want to make sure we understood this part of tradition because it helps us to better understand the Scripture, the tradition of Scripture. The two work hand in hand. A lot of Protestant churches, most of them pretty much, have lost this. 
they don't believe in an oral tradition. It's scripture alone. Only the Bible is the tradition, the apostolic tradition that they follow. And the problem with that is they only have half the picture. It's like trying to do a, you know, a puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, and you rip half the pieces out and throw them away. You're not going to have the full picture. We need the, the traditions that were passed down from generation to generation to help us better understand the written tradition, the Bible. Ironically, because Protestants don't have the oral tradition that we have, they've thrown that out willingly, they've started to fill it in with their own oral traditions. They've started to develop their own traditions with a small t, we would call it. They would consider it a big t, although they would never use those words because they don't believe in oral tradition, and yet a lot of their teachings that, con that contradict the Catholic faith are their oral teachings that they have passed from generation to generation. So it's interesting how that void happened, and then he started to fill it up anyways. Nature, you ever hear the phrase, nature abhors a void? Well, there it is. It hates a vacuum. Well, they, they fill that vacuum with their own tradition. But the oral tradition and the written tradition are two different ways to communicate. They express the truth of Christ in two different ways, but they work together to help us understand those, those truths of Christ. Now, as I mentioned, the big T versus the little T. I made sure to write in blue so you can see the difference between the two of them. Um, when we're talking about apostolic tradition, we're talking about the big T. That is the preaching of the apostles, the teaching of Christ, passed down from generation to generation. That is revealed truth from God. That cannot change. When we talk about the little T tradition, we are talking about those practices, those things that we do as Catholics that have really grown out of apostolic tradition. There are things that can change based on time and place. So a little tradition, just little tradition, would be like using Latin versus English at Mass. That can change and has changed. We use English mostly for our Masses because it was determined that, that we could do this. But a big tree tradition is the transubstantiation that that bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. That can never change. Yeah, sorry. Yes, Father, I just wanted to ask, what's an example of oral tradition? Like, I understand that written is the Bible. Right. But when you, what's an example of oral? A lot of what's in the catechism. Okay. And that's why I kind of laugh about, we've taken the oral tradition, and we still call it oral tradition, but we've written it down. So things that, to be clear with, with oral tradition, a lot of it, too, is we've looked at the Bible and we were able to rationally figure out, rationally discern this. Transubstantiation, the, 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 which is a fancy word meaning the bread and wine at Mass become the body and blood of Christ, is not in the Bible. You will not find the word transubstantiation anywhere in the Bible. But we have, through again, through thought and prayer and study, the church realized when Jesus says, this bread and wine is my body, is my blood, 
this is what happens. So that is a big example of an oral tradition coming from Scripture. You know, that Scripture says this becomes body and blood. Well, we call that transubstantiation, that process. So answer your question? Yes, thank you. Not a problem. Um, so we've got these traditions. We've got oral tradition. We've got written tradition. How do we interpret that? How do we understand it? Because it's not always clear. You read the scriptures, and the scriptures are not always clear in our day and age. You read the teachings of the church, like the catechism. Some of you were grumbling last week about, you know, some of the stuff that they were talking about in here. It takes interpretation. It takes how do we understand this stuff. The scripture and the tradition are entrusted to everyone. They're entrusted to all of us to pass on. But again, we need some help to understand those so we can pass them on. And that's why we have in the church what is called the magisterium. Magisterium is a, another big word that comes from magister, teacher, or master, but teacher. You know, a magister in Latin is a teacher. And so the magisterium is that office, that job of the church to teach to teach what the tradition means, to teach what our Lord said and did. And this magisterium gives us the authentic interpretation of tradition. In other words, when we look at this magisterium, this magisterium is going to tell us what it means and we can take it to the bank. We can know this is the truth and that they are explaining it to us so that we can understand it in our day and age. Because it does need to be reinterpreted from generation to generation, based on our learning, based on our cultural surroundings, and so on. Now, this magisterium, this teaching office of the church, is the bishops in union with the pope. So the job of a bishop is to be part of this teaching office and to teach in union with the Pope. Now this is where the idea of the big T versus little t comes in. Because this magisterium is guided by the Holy Spirit in doing that. Not everything the Pope says is going to be an act of the magisterium. You know, if the Pope gets up tomorrow and says, oh, I think Duke is going to win March Madness. I don't even know if Duke is playing in March Madness this year. That's just a name I picked off the top of my head. But if he stood up and said, Duke is going to win March Madness this year, he has no better chance of being right than if I said, no, I think North Carolina is going to win. And again, I don't know if North Carolina is in March Madness either. You know, there's no... When it comes to stuff like that, it's the Pope can be just as wrong as the rest of us. When he's sitting on a plane giving interviews, he can be just as wrong as the rest of us. And in my opinion, sometimes he was. He's kind of gotten away from doing that, thanks be to God. But sometimes he said some things that kind of caused a little bit of confusion at times. But when he does stand up, in example, there was a, an act of the magisterium in the 1800s, 1854 to be specific, the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And I'll talk more about it in a little bit, 
But one of the tasks of the magisterium is to define what is dogmas. What is a dogma? A dogma is a truth that is contained in Revelation. So it comes right out of the Bible, comes right out of oral, oral tradition, or flows from it. Meaning, again, it grows from it. We look at it and say, okay, knowing this and knowing this, we can reason this. Those are things that we are bound to hold as true. The argument's done. The answer has been given. There is no more argument. We can no longer argue that Our Lady was not immaculately conceived. That truth has been revealed. And it is the truth with a capital T, as in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot argue against it. If you argue against it, you are going against Christ. That's what a dogma is. I think we, we, we kind of, because we live in such a relativistic world, we think everything's up for argument. No, there's some things you can argue. You can argue all you want. You're still wrong. You know, and dogmas are one of those. They are things that we cannot argue. We are bound by the Holy Spirit to hold them. And the reason why we are bound to hold them, the reason why I say that they are truth that we cannot argue against, is because they light the path to salvation. I like this phrase uh, that the Catechism has in paragraph 89. Dogmas light along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. If we follow the dogmas of the faith, we are following the path to eternal life. You argue against them. You're saying, no, I don't want to take that path. I want to go this way instead. Well, I'd rather go the way that goes to eternal life. So that's, that's why this isn't the church saying, you must believe this because we said. No, it's you must believe this because it's the truth that leads to salvation. And that's, that's, so that's why it's so these dogmas are so important. Now, one aspect that goes along with this is what the church calls the census Fidei, the sense of the faithful. And I, I would argue that today, this is very highly misunderstood. This is something that I think a lot of people today don't understand. So we as the body of Christ, as members of the body of Christ, we share in the responsibility to understand tradition and to hand it on, to pass it on to the next generation. Yes, that is, as I said, the, the job of apostolic succession of the bishops. But also all of us have that responsibility for us to pass it on to the next generation here and now. You know, and that's why catechesis is so important. That's why living our faith publicly is so important and so on. And if we are all as faithful believing and living this in the same way, we are teaching a truth with our lives. The Catechism says, the whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. From the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. That's Catechism 92. What this means is, if the faithful and the bishops and the priests and everyone believe something, that is a sign that this is a truth. This is where the Immaculate Conception dogma comes in. 
before he declared it, about two or three years before Pope Pius IX declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, he actually sent out surveys to bishops throughout the world. Again, this is the 19th century. This is 1850s. Wasn't as easy as sending an email or posting on a website like they do today. But he sent out this survey to all the bishops. And overwhelmingly, the bishops came back saying, yes, we believe this. That is what the, the census fidei looks like. That overwhelmingly, Catholics had already believed in the Immaculate Conception. It was already understood and so he declared it as a dogma because of that. And so basically he declared it as a dogma because of the sense of the faithful. Because we already believed it. So, census fidei is not popular opinion, however. This, the sense of the faithful is not, well, we want to change the church because surveys show, you know. It's not that way. It is not popular opinion. There are many things in our church today that people will say, well, the sense of the faithful says we need to have married priests. Which, by the way, is a small-t tradition. We could have married priests in the Roman Catholic Church. It's been decided over the years that it is best for us not to, but we could. However, it is big-t tradition that we cannot have women priests. And this is a, <gasps> you can't have women priests? Oh no, we're sexist. No, tradition shows our Lord's actions, our Lord's lives, our Lord's words show that he chose men to serve in the ministerial priesthood. And there are those who say, but the sense of the faithful says, you know, this latest survey, that the pure results show don't care. That's not sense of the faithful. It's very rare that we have a case where there's a true sense of the faithful declaring a dogma, declaring truth. And especially today in our church that is so split, that is so divided. You know, we are in such a difficult position, at least in the Western church, in the Western United, in United States and Western Europe and so on. We are so divided. So when people get up and say, well, my group was founded to promote the census fide. No, it wasn't. It was promoted, signed up to, to promote what you want to promote. You know, we see that time and time and time again. You know, this is, this is a very rare thing. Just as declaration of dogma by the Pope is a very rare thing. Usually it's continuing to reinforce and re-encourage the teachings of the faith. So that's mostly the oral tradition. Now, how about sacred scripture, the written tradition? And of course, this is what everybody knows when they think of the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. Well, both are the Word of God, tradition and, and Bible. And when we talk about the Word of God, it's interesting we use it in two senses. We use it, first of all, by saying that Jesus is the Word of God, a word spoken throughout all of history. He is the word of God that created the universe, that holds the universe in existence, that is where the universe is going to. But the word of God is also the Bible. The words 
that are in the Word of God. You know, so we, we use both of them. And so the two sides, you know, the, the, it, it, well, it is confusing. It is confusing, other than to say that the Word of God became flesh. Jesus himself became one of us, and he was the Word spoken. The, the Word spoken became us and gave us the Word of God. I mean, it is, it is confusing. But when we're at Mass, we have the Word of God, and we have the body of Christ. And I always love it whenever someone asks me, so Father, how late can I be and still fulfill my obligation? And I think more or less the church has kind of said, as long as you hear the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel and the homily, However, the problem with that is, of course, we should never be asking that question unless it's a, you know, an emergency or something like that. Both the proclamation of the scripture and the liturgy of the Eucharist, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist, are of equal importance. We need to be there for both. Again, unless there's a good reason why not. You know, I mean, people are going to have, well, I get off work at, I get off work at 1130 and the earliest I can be here is 1135. Okay. You know, you do what you can. Now, perpetually late, and I wish a certain doctor was here right now because I could really give him some grief. <laughs> um, perpetually late. We don't know who you mean. No, no, no. <laughs> people, people here don't know what's going on. Um, that's another story. And that's something that we need to make sure we're not doing, that we are here in time for both the scriptures and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist. Both are very important. You know, and we talk about having one table of God's word and God's body. And sometimes you'll hear that, you know, the, the table of the word and the table of the Eucharist, that the ambo is the table of the word, the altar is the table of the Eucharist. Well, just as oral tradition and written tradition are bound together, the Word of Scripture and the Eucharist are bound together. It's, it's a whole. We separate them just for convenience sake of saying, here's where we proclaim the Word, here's where you know, Jesus comes to the altar. You know, We are fed at Mass by both. We are fed by His Word spoken and by receiving Him in communion. They feed us different ways, but both are just as important as the other. Neither are unimportant. When we look at how Scripture came to be, you know, we, we, talk, we say that the Scripture was written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing down of the Bible. Every word in there is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there was kind of a common understanding of this that might be a little off where and you'll see pictures of this where you'll see you know like say saint luke writing down his his gospel and acts of the apostles and you'll see an angel there whispering in his ear like he's a scribe writing down what the angel is telling him that's not the case Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write those books. And every other book in the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit and was written down by a human being. 
There are no Bibles, no books of the Bible that just suddenly appeared on a table one day with a note from God saying, you'll need this, God. You know? Somebody sat down and wrote that down. It'd be nice if we'd do that. It's like, okay, here's a plan for your rest of your life. Boom. You know? But somebody wrote it down. And they wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they used their own abilities. The, the Bible, the Catechism says their own powers, their own faculties. What this means is they were using their rational thought. They were using their ability to write. And you know, one thing that Bible scholars can do is they can tell you, or they make a reasonable, educated guess who wrote a particular book, especially in the older, or in the, the end of the Bible when you get into the letters. You know, because there's some argument whether or not Paul wrote all his letters or not. There's some argument whether Peter actually wrote those letters or not. I hold they did. But we can look at how they're written and see that, yes, Luke did write both Acts of the Apostles and his Gospel. They are two volumes of the same story written by the same person. Because it's in his way of writing. We all have our own ways of writing. You know, and, and we probably, you know, if we had to do a lot of, uh, lot of papers in school, especially in college and beyond, we learned kind of what is our way of writing. I do not preach the same way a pre, uh, Father Doug at Holy Spirit preaches. He has his way of doing it. I have mine. Well, in the same way as with the authors of the scriptures. They have their language that they write in. But the Holy Spirit kept them from write, writing error. The Holy Spirit kept them revealing the truth or writing down the truth that God revealed through the working of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit made sure that the scriptures were the truth, the word of God. And these scriptures, these words that are written down are not dead words. They're not like this schedule here. It's just ink on a page that happens to look like letters that we can understand. The scriptures are the word of God. They are Jesus himself. And that's why we proclaim them at Mass, so that those words can enter in our hearts, and that's why we should study the scriptures, so that they can enter our hearts. So, since the Holy Spirit helped, inspired the sacred authors, the Holy Spirit also helps us to interpret the Scriptures. And this is one of the, I think, the more interesting aspects when we look at the, the interpreting of the Scriptures. That there are many senses, many layers to the Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, what the, what the Bible is telling us, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the Scriptures, is not always as clear as it seems. And this is why we need oral tradition to help us. I like the, the, that phrase in the, the Catechism in, in uh, paragraph 116. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral to act, anagogy our destiny. So there are four senses, four ways that we can understand the Scriptures, four layers to the Scriptures. The first one, the, the, the top one is most obvious, is the literal sense. The literal text of the book. King David lived at this point. 
He did this. Jesus walked this land. He said this. He did this. Very literal sense. And when we talk about the literal sense, it uses a phrase, exegesis, an exegete. Exegete is a person who does exegesis, so that's clear. Um, but exegesis is an explanation or critical interpretation of a text. It's looking at the Bible. It's looking at this text and understanding the context of it. It's understanding where it comes from. You know, you'll hear of, of people studying the history of the Bible, where they'll look at this book was written at this time. You know, there, there's arguments of when exactly were the four Gospels written down? Was it as, did they start as early as 10 years after Jesus' death? Did they wait 20 or 30 years? Was the last book written within the first century, so before the year 100, or after the year 100? There are arguments about that. When that book was written, where that book was written, who wrote that book? Because that helps us to better understand the message of the book. You know, St. Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. What was going on in Corinth at that time? Why did he have to write this letter? This is the literal sense, and this is what exegesis does, is digs into that so we can better understand the meaning of that scripture. Now, ultimately, the magisterium, the teaching off of the church, has the final word. They could come down and say, okay, now that, that's a wrong path. You, know, you need to get off that one, you know. No, St. Paul didn't, didn't go to North America or something and write that letter. I'm not saying he did, but you know, I'm just using that as kind of a silly example. But they, can, they, they have the final word in that. So that's the literal sense. It's the literal text, and it's where the literal text came from and how it came about and so on. And then we have three spiritual senses. The first one is called allegorical, the allegorical sense. Allegorical is al allegory. It's allegory. It's prefiguring. It's, yes, we might be talking about this, but it's really pointing to that. It's really an image of this. Allegory all points to Christ. So a lot of the parables and so on are in themselves allegorical. But we can look at a text and we can say the Ark of the Covenant is an allegory for Jesus. The, you know, this and that and the temple and these things and this action and that action is all allegory. It all points to Christ. And so there's, there's, that's one way that we can read it as an allegory, where it's pointing to something greater. There's a moral sense where we can look at the Bible and we can read a story in the Bible, we can read a message in the Bible and go, oh, this is a, there's a moral message to it. That it's teaching us how to live with Christ. And then anagogical. This points to the eternal significance in the Bible. This points to that everything is salvation history. Everything that happened in the past throughout the Bible is all pointing to eternal life. And we can look at these subjects in the Bible. And all of these senses are things that people study and pray over and chew over and argue over and fight over and to understand better all these different meanings of the Scripture, these senses of the Scripture. I mean, it, it's, it's when we look at the Scripture, there is so much more to it than just the literal 
text on the page. It goes so much deeper. And so that's, that's how we can keep over 2,000 years still trying to learn the scriptures because we're learning all these different messages. So finally, to talk about the canon of scripture, what we call the canon of scripture is not just the list of books. And of course, it's, they're shown in there, the, the 46 books in the Old Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament. You know, we can look at that uh, if you, you happen to know, you know the Bible song or, you, or the, the Bible name song where you can sing all of them, better for you than me. I never learned that. But it's more than just that list of these books are inspired and these books are part of the Bible. It's also what the two parts of the Bible are, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is revealed truth. And it was revealed for us to prophesy and prepare for the coming of Christ. It is the story of salvation history from the fall of man to just before our Lord was born. It is how the world was prepared for the coming of Christ. How the people of Israel were prepared for the coming of Christ. It is showing us His plan of salvation. And we one temptation that people have is to look at the Old Testament and saying that God is not the same God as the New Testament. That the Old Testament God is not the same. So we should throw it out. And we can't do that. In fact, very early on the church, the magisterium of the church made it clear, the bishops in union with the Pope made it clear that we can't do that. There was, this was in the second century early 2nd century, there was someone called Marcion who taught that this Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament. Because the Old Testament God is mean. He's malevolent. He's cruel. He hurts people. He kills. He wants people killed. That's not the same as the benevolent, loving, peaceful New Testament God. So we should get rid of the Old Testament. Mind you, he also thought St. Paul was the only real apostle None of the others were apostles. And he only kept like 10 books and he wrote his own gospel that he thought should be in the Bible. And the church in 144 AD, 144 AD, declared him a heretic, that that was not the case. We need the Old Testament. But then we also have, of course, the New Testament, which I would argue we as Christians know far better than we do the Old Testament. But the New Testament, of course, it focuses on our Lord. It focuses on His passion and death. And it focuses on the initial formation of the church. Jesus founded a church, and after we get through the Gospels, we see the church trying to figure itself out, trying to grasp those teachings of Christ, trying to grab what her mission is as a church. And that's what we, we see there. Now, when we look at those, those Gospels in particular, the Catechism tells us that there are, there are three stages to those Gospels being written down. The first, of course, was our Lord actually walking on earth, teaching and doing His miracles, living His life, the life and teachings of Christ. I mean, of course, the Gospels actually came out of His life, what He did. And those teachings and His actions 
were passed down by the apostles. The apostles went out after our Lord rose from the dead and taught them. They went out and founded churches throughout what we today call the Middle East, mostly. Eventually, and again, you know, there's arguments of when it happened, but eventually what the apostles were teaching were written down. Written down in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can argue Acts are kind of a fifth gospel in a way. So they developed over time. They were passed out from, word to, from, from person to person and then eventually were written down and said, yes, these are the gospels. They were codified. They are set as canon. And the, the, they all work together to give us the bigger picture of who Jesus was. But not just do the gospels work together. The entire scriptures work together. There's a unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we read the Old Testament in light of Christ's death and resurrection. We have to look at the Old Testament in light of what has come after. Or again, as the Catechism says, we see the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. We see the New Testament in the light of the Old. Or the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. We need both to understand. And so... We need these scriptures to be feeding us. We need these scriptures to help us better know our Lord, that they are given to us to better know who our Lord is. And as the Catechism quotes again in 133, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. So, any questions of all that? It's a lot. We went through it fairly quickly, actually. But any questions? Like we have traditions, but they can be changed mm -hmm. and modified. Yep. So those are the small T traditions. Yes, correct. You know, I might get upset some people, but like one small T tradition is what pew you sit in. Oh, did I say that? No. <laughs> I was thinking, I was, well, I was thinking like a uh, Friday uh, meet. Yeah, actually, that is, that is a very good example. Yeah. The idea of doing like some penance on Friday is something that is a long-standing understanding of the church because it's, it's a reminder of Christ's death on the cross. But it's a man-made. Well, I wouldn't say man-made. You want to be very careful about that because that's, that's used as a slur. I would say it is a small-t tradition because we can change it. Matter of fact, I just heard, uh, was listening today, arguing about whether or not on a Friday before solemnity. So sun, Saturday is the solemnity of St. Joseph. Or Sunday. Saturday, no, excuse me. I think they had that backwards. Anyways, I think they, the person I was listening to was had it backwards. But anyways, the, the solemnity of St. Joseph is coming up. And I believe it is Saturday. I'm probably wrong, and I'll probably get corrected. But Friday night, can you say the solemnity starts then? Liturgically, we do. That's why we can have Saturday night masses. Saturday night begins Sunday. So does Friday night begin that, that solemnity, that big celebration? So then does that mean you can have a hamburger on Friday night instead of a fish fry? You know, I mean, it, it's kind of an arcane argument, but one of the points they came out with is a bishop, Bishop Morphel could say, this Friday, and sometimes you'll hear it when St. Patty's Day shows up on a Friday, 
you can eat meat this Friday because of that obligation to spend. So yes, it is a small tea tradition. And I, I, again, I kind of I push against the, the man-made tradition because it's kind of used as a slur meaning not real tradition. So I, I'm careful about that. That's why I use the big T versus small T distinction. You know, it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as man-made true, but. When we were stationed in Germany, and that was in 55 to 58, mm -hmm. the Germans had a dispensation. They uh, didn't have to uh, go along with the Friday. Hmm. Because um, it was just not too long after the Second World War, and they didn't have any meat to eat. The, the, the country was rebuilding, so yeah. So they did, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's other places where, um, example, there are places where beaver is allowed on Fridays. <laughs> because it's, it's a waterborne animal, even though it is a mammal, but it, it you know, lives in and around the water. Yeah. And places like Canada that have lots of beavers, you know, stuff like that. It's so, not considered meat. Not for the purpose of this. Maybe it's fish, huh? <laughs> it, it's, it's a, it's a well, water, it's, it's, it's a water animal. Yeah. That's all we'll say. A whale. A whale. A whale is a mammal, but you can eat whale. That's true, yeah, right. So, any other questions? So, dogma. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, first of all, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. They are in there. Um, and they are, not, they are, as you read through them. Now, there's not a... I've not ever actually seen, like, a formal list. I think it's usually just you have to learn from study which are. Um, and generally, it's... I hate to say it, but there's a lot of things that we find out whether something is a dogma or doctrine or whatever when we bump against it and we're wrong. You know, it's more kind of that. I mean, ultimately, we should be just following the teachings of the church, but we will bump up against them, and then we will. So off the top of my head, I can't think of a place where I could point to you and say, there are this many of them. I don't think there really technically are a lot of dogmas of the church. I mean, it really, you know, again, it's, you know, it's a very specific thing, um, and I can't think of a list off the top of my head, so. Well, again, it, it, it doesn't, because some of the tradition is the oral tradition, some of the tradition is the Bible, and the two work together to show us the fullness of tradition, you know, so, and again, you know, the, the Bible helps us understand oral tradition, oral tradition helps us understand the Bible, the two work together, so. But we were, but I, I'm probably older than most people are here, <laughs> but uh, we were never encouraged to read the Bible. Um, my grandparents had a Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, we were never encouraged to read it. And that's, you know, that's, that's a sad aspect that you see come, kind of float up every once in a while in the history of the church, where the church has always encouraged everyone to learn the Bible. You know, the, the magisterium of the church has always encouraged us to learn the Bible. However, did that filter down to your average person in the pew? Not always. Obviously, they, they didn't let it out very good. Or we, yeah, because well, the, the, the funny part is... Because the funny part is there were, I want to say even like Pope Pius X, who was Pope in the early 1900s, like he's the Pope that established our diocese in 1904. 
I think he was one who encouraged people to be studying the scriptures. So there always have been encouragements to do that. But let's be honest, most priests don't take the time and effort to do that. And even bishops don't take the time and effort to do that. You know, and it, it's we're, we've, one blessing we've got today is we have so many resources available to us where we can go and look and say, well, see here, the popes have been, bishops have been, the saints have been saying. You know, this phrase of, of ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ comes from St. Jerome who lived in the 4th century. I think he would encourage lay people to be reading the Bible. If they could read. If they could read. Or they could afford a book. Because, you know, a book the size of the catechism would have been in today's money a year's worth of your income. You know. Yep. Yeah, they, they, that, was a, that was an argument of the Protestants against the Catholics. They chained the Bibles to the podiums. Well, yeah, because that Bible was worth five years' wages. You know, a uh, hundred sheep had to give their life to make the vellum it was written on. A monk had to copy it over the course of ten years. It was worth a fortune. And it was the only copy. In this village, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you know, actually, more and more research is showing people were more literate, even during the worst of the dark ages, than we used to think. Now, could they read well? I mean, could they sit down and read the Bible and understand? No, maybe not. Wasn't it written in Latin too? For a while, it was, but they would have learned Latin. Well, it was originally written in Greek and Hebrew mostly. Uh, but by the time, like the Middle Ages, it would have been in Latin. But they would have learned Latin as well as they would, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting that we've got this mindset, oh, they were ignorant, they were stupid. It's like, well, they really weren't. They just might not have had the education that we take for granted today. So they, they would have, you know, they would have known how to read rudimentarily. You know, but again, we didn't have the luxury, they didn't have the luxury of laser printers that can print off, you know, no. you know, penny a copy paper. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah that's, that's a good point. They probably know more than we do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's a good point. So any other questions? Mm -hmm. Isn't it fair to say that then if through the, through the Bible, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that, I mean, it's fair that we need to, the church needs to clarify some things that the Pope says that are not. I would argue that that needs to happen. Only because, and again, not everything the Pope says is going to be magisterial, you know. He can, he can say a lot of things and he can be teaching, correct teaching. But that doesn't mean he's speaking as, as the head of the magisterium. Um, but I do believe that, and it's, it's kind of a frustration where people will try to cover things up instead of clarify them. And that, that is one of the concerns that has happened in recent years. We've had popes that 
they were almost too clear. John Paul II, I loved him. I thought he was a, an amazing pope. That man could not write a short sentence. He clarified things to the point of absurdity. Pope Francis is kind of an opposite of that. And again, I will give the credit where credit is due. A lot of the things that Pope Francis has supposedly been unclear on or confusing on, no, Pope Francis might have been loose in his language, but the press was the ones that were unclear. How his language was reported was unclear. But still, in, in that case, I would like to see, especially those who work with the Pope, those who work for him in the Vatican and so on, coming out and saying, you oh, know, this is what the Pope said, and, and it's absolutely right. Or this is you know, how you can best understand what he said. You know, he, he didn't phrase it this way, but this is what he said. So absolutely, and I, I think sometimes that's unfortunately kind of falls to us to look at what the Pope said, and first of all, to put it in the best light possible and try to understand where he's going. Because again, there's very, very few times where I've, I've actually looked into what he said and gone, yeah, I don't agree with him on that one. He can be, he can say that, I just don't agree with him on it. Usually it's like, I definitely would not have said it that way. <laughs> well, we can read what he says as well. Yeah. And it's open for interpretation. Yep. And oftentimes that can lead to, I mean, like obviously the one that comes to mind for me are just like gays are loved, right? Those, mm -hmm. You know, in short. Yeah. You know, you just not, we aren't going to allow those marriages. But Correct. I think, I mean, those are hot topics in today's yeah, and that's, world, right? And I yeah, I, I think Pope Francis is really thought forward about a lot of things that are coming up in today's society. Oh, absolutely. So, no, I agree. I admire him for trying to address it, honestly, yeah. because it's trying to be more progressive. Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. I, I, he's, he does say a lot of things that you look into him, you think about him, and it's like, yeah, he's right. He is absolutely right. You know, we're all loved. Right. Now, would I have phrased it the way he did? Probably not doesn't mean he's wrong. I just, I wouldn't have said it that way. So no, I, I agree with you. So no, that, that's, that's a good point. And you know, we do need to look at what he says and look at what he says, not what CNN or New York Times says he said, or Fox or MSNBC or insert or the Billings Gazette or the Great Falls Tribune or. So father, as our teacher, why is not some of these things that he said do we have five hours to talk about church politics? No, we, don't. we don't, and that's the problem. It's a big issue. There are, you know, as I said, we are a very divided church. We are a very divided church. And that church goes all the way up to those who are advising Pope Francis. And those, there are those who... I want to be as charitable as possible, but those who are advising him the way they think he needs to be advised, which those of us sitting around this table might not agree with that, you know, how he's being advised. Um, there are those who would be their job to clarify, who sit there and say, no, I'm fine with what he said. And again, this is church politics, this is division, this is humanity, this is sin, this is all this stuff, I mean. So... Um, I'm trying, I, I do want to be as charitable as possible to Pope Francis because I do respect him as our Pope and I do agree with a lot of what he has said. I agree with a lot of what he's written. There's a few things I would have got if I, you know, if I had the direct line to the Pope and say, what were you doing? What are you thinking? You know? 
But that's human nature too, you know. But that's his opinion and your opinion. Correct. You know, I have never heard Pope Francis say anything that is contrary to going back to dogma, going back to define things that are, we must follow these. I have never heard him say anything like that. I've heard him say a lot of things that, again, I agree with some, I disagree with others. And I'm sure if, we were, if he was sitting here, he'd say, yes, Father Corey, and I feel the same way about you. So, <laughs> Anything else? Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Well, let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.